Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In honor of International Women's Day in March, we speak with Debbie Watkins, CEO and co-founder of Lucy, to share about her career beginning in the UK and shift to focus on financial institutions and startups in Southeast Asia. We talk about the unique challenges that women face in accessing financial services, especially in emerging markets, and the surprising lack of private sector focus on this customer base. Debbie also shares some of her secrets for women working in male-dominated spaces. Lucy is a fintech focused on empowering women. They recently raised 575,000 USD in their pre-seed round and launched the beta version of the Lucy app. You can learn more about them by visiting welucy.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Today, we're going to be speaking to one amazing woman about her journey to Southeast Asia and all of her work around empowering other women to succeed through finance. Thank you very much for inviting me, Amrita. So, Debbie. We'll get into the Lucy story later, but I think you personally have like a really fascinating career journey. You know, you started out as like a professional on like very, uh, a certain track living in London, a career woman there, and then you shifted your whole life uh, to Southeast Asia. Can you, I, I find that super inspiring. So could you just tell us, you know, how, how did that happen? Uh, yeah. Well, like with most of these things, it wasn't really planned. Um, it just sort of happened. So yeah, I was very much sort of um, corporate woman in, in London. Um, I kind of had a career of about 12 years or so in ERP systems and then moved into electronic cash on smart cards. And this is like late 90s when things were really just starting on that side of things. It was all very new. Um, it was very exciting with what we were doing, I have to say. Um, it was a, a project that was a majority owned by MasterCard. Um, I was working for the UK franchise, which was supported by three high street banks. Um, at the time I joined, um, they had a pilot which included an entire town in England um, and five universities and all sorts of other things. Um, and I spent the first six months being really excited about the technology. Um, and then the next six months thinking, hmm, what's the business case? Um, and then ultimately, <laughs> after five years or whatever, they'd spent doing this and billions of dollars, they realized that there was no business case because no one was actually going to pay for it. Um, and so I ended up getting made redundant. And 
Um, I've been offered a couple of other jobs, but at the same time, some friends of mine had said to me, well, look, we're traveling um, for a year. Why don't you come and join us and just sort of have a very late gap year? And so that's what I decided to do. Um, and this was early 2000, I guess. Um, and I contacted them and said, well, uh, where are you going to be in May? And they said, um, Cambodia. And I said, um, where's that? And I went to the travel agent and the travel agent was like, where and why on earth do you want to go there? Um, and I mean, just to kind of sum up the contrast here. I mean, when I actually took off, I had to go to the salon to get my acrylic nails removed before I left. Right. So um, it's, it was such a complete shift. I guess, between sort of what I was and what I decided to do. But from the minute I arrived in Cambodia, it was just such a huge revelation. I mean, obviously, you know, it, people always say the first developing country that you travel to is the one that really has an impact. But um, the thing that hit me from the very beginning was like how busy everybody was, right? It's, it's kind of constant hustle. Um, and so I ended up staying there much longer than expected, six years, actually, um, and started out volunteering, got involved in more ERP consulting that moved into core banking consulting, which moved into more microfinance technology strategy. And that's kind of how things evolved. Um, so I spent six years in Cambodia, two years in Laos, of which a lot of my time was spent working in Africa, actually. Um, then a couple of years in Indonesia with Mercy Corps, um, two years running a, a large Gates Foundation project um, in Bangladesh. Um, so I was resident in Dhaka for a couple of years. And yeah, things sort of went on from there. And so I never wow. went back. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. When you arrived in Southeast Asia, that was, you said, um, in 2000, that was like really early days of microfinance. What unique challenges did you see? Um, you know, in Southeast Asia. And at that time, did you see any overlaps between what you would see maybe in Europe or the UK? Um, well, the, the challenges were particularly about outreach at the time. Um, and, you know, obviously then we didn't have what we have now with sort of more widespread mobile technology. So the biggest challenge was actually getting out to people that needed it. And so, you know, back in that, those days, microfinance was still largely an NGO driven activity and something that was done purely from a social perspective rather than a business. Um, and, you know, of course, that changed over a period of time, which brought um, different business models and additional challenges. But at, at the time, it was just more uh, very much viewed as being a sort of humanitarian service. Got it. Got it. Um, and, you know, you also, you also talked about many of those different roles and organizations that you work with. Um, as you changed roles, moved across the region, did this, did you have any shifts in like the impact that you wanted to make or your personal mission? Um, yes, I mean, it was kind of, it became really interesting and say as these things were shifting from being this socially driven thing to being more of a business thing, what you saw was a bit more of a disconnect with what the customers really needed. Um, and I guess that's, you know, we, we know all the stories about sort of things that happened in India, um, you know, big shareholders getting involved, um, microfinance um, loan offices being motivated by commissions and having targets and all of these kind of things. And, you know, the net impact was it became kind of a bit mass market. Um, and as a result of that, I think as well, the, 
microfinance institutions stopped really listening to the customer as much in many cases um, and, and therefore became, dare I say it, much more like banks who don't really listen to what customers need particularly. And so, you know, what I was seeing was that this kind of take it or leave it kind of approach was becoming much more widespread. I've got a loan. This is the loan I offer. I don't really care whether this fits your cash flow. Um, to some degrees, obviously not all, um, uh, they didn't really care whether it fitted people's ability to repay as well. Um, but certainly, you know, there was much less focus on actually tailoring products to meet the pains of the individual customers that they were trying to serve. Got it. And yeah, a lot of that like mission drift, it sounds like a lot of that came in, in, in your view, because of a lot of private sector influences. Is that right? Would you characterize that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, not private sector influences as such, with the exception of the fact that the, the focus shifted from sort of being a sort of humanitarian, socially driven thing into focused on shareholder returns. Yeah, and you've got shareholders coming in who are kind of big companies that are expecting big returns rather than being impact investors. I mean, impact investment is something that's been a fairly new phenomenon of people actually balancing out reasonable rate of return with with social impact. You know, at that time, it was just kind of big money coming in, but they expected big returns. And so it put the MFIs under an awful lot of pressure to really deliver on the shareholder expectations. And so yes mission drift but i think too far um to one extreme yeah yeah absolutely so then i guess the next you know after all of these uh all of these incredible experiences across the region um you have now decided not now you know like about a year ago decided to start lucy can you tell us about the genesis of lucy yes so well, that kind of as with most things, again, evolved over a period of time. And, and, you know, during the time I've been working in inclusive finance, which is like 20 years now, um, I've worked in about 35 countries. Um, and this is everywhere from DR Congo to Pakistan to Papua New Guinea. Um, and as I say, my focus in one shape or form has been really on helping inclusive financial institutions to increase outreach um, and productivity through technology. Um, a lot of what I was doing as well was providing strategic advisory services um, focused around customer centric product design. Um, and what became apparent was that most financial institutions find this really difficult. Um, and I think most people do. It's a human nature thing, right? You tend to leap to the solution rather than actually looking at what the problem is and, and working towards a solution. It's more like people tend to have, here's my solution and I'm going to retrofit the problem to fit it um, right. and the other thing that I noticed was pretty much everywhere I went that every single financial institution was being run by men um, and that a very high percentage of the, the customers they were serving were men yeah and on the other hand you know when I had weekends or whatever to kick around wherever it happened to be you look out and it's these are micro enterprise driven environments and you see that like it's the women that are really doing a lot of the work um, and so why aren't they actually getting access to the same degree of financial services um, and you know I was even hearing quotes like oh well um, you know we we don't lend as much to women as men because um, women don't take as many risks and therefore we don't want to lend to them as much 
it's kind of a bit back to the front, I think. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, and, and so what, what we were seeing or what I was seeing really was that, that women who were actually driving these businesses, who were strong, who were tenacious, who were determined, who were smart, um, but didn't get what they needed. And so it was kind of partly, partly this side of things. And I'd kind of recognized as well that with the work I was doing with um, strategic design is that there was kind of quite a lot of complacency with mainstream financial institutions with regards to being customer centric. It's like, well, why should we bother? Why do we want to spend time and effort going out and understanding new market segments? Because doing what we're doing right now is like keeping this perfectly fine. Thank you. Um, right. And and so there just seemed to be this huge gap. Um, and so kind of at the same time a couple of years ago I was introduced to my co-founder Luke who um, had been spending uh, had a number of years um, building up a business that developed um, apps for large organizations including banks um, and he'd kind of been just as frustrated by their lack of innovation and and sort of slowness in responding to pretty much anything um, and he'd been introduced to Hal my other co-founder who was a CEO of a bank in Myanmar, but had had a 10-year history with the World Bank. Um, and he'd seen as well firsthand that um, women weren't getting as much access to credit as they could do in Myanmar, but the women that he was lending to um, tended to be much better payers. Um, and so it was kind of a bit of a meeting of minds from slightly different directions. We ended up having lots of cups of coffee and saying, there's something wrong with all of this. And, uh, the, then the inevitable happened we said well let's do something about it because it's obvious that no one else is going to and that's kind of how it came about that's amazing I think Debbie your insights around you know a lot of micro enterprises especially being run by women but in fact financial institutions not serving women is kind of wild it's an opportunity for financial institutions to like double their market you know the fact that they weren't doing it and it's still happening today I'm sure so amazing genesis story for Lucy clear need in the market uh, let's talk a little bit about what Lucy actually does and what are the products and services that you're offering and in what geographies? Yeah, so we start, well, well, let's start with the geography first. So we're actually starting in Singapore. Um, we're in a closed beta live environment right now, um, but we're aiming to do a public launch for April, May time. Um, and our focus um, is financial services and non-financial services targeted at helping um, entrepreneurial women. Um, and so we're entirely focused on women, um, not just entrepreneurs, but, but when I say entrepreneurial women, it's also women who've got a dream of starting their own business, right? Or perhaps they've got a little side hustle going on at the same time as their day job and they're looking to see whether they can make this into something better or they're planning for a business. And so our focus um, in Singapore is on two particular segments, which are foreign domestic workers um, and micro entrepreneurs. Um, we're tailoring financial services to meet the specific pain points that they have. Um, and so what we've done is spend a lot of time really immersing ourselves in the lives of these two groups and seeing what challenges they have as far as being underserved by classic financial institutions. Um, and so the result is um, a suite of services that have been very much designed to respond to their individual challenges. 
Um, and this includes everything from accounts, free fee-free accounts with a MasterCard through to um, salary wage streaming, um, low cost digital dig remittances, um, savings pockets with goals, all kinds of different things. Um, but the other aspect, which is what we'd recognized as well, was that for people who are starting or growing their own small business, it's lonely and it's scary. Yeah. And when you're small and you're starting out and you need advice, where do you go? Right. So you end up turning to Google. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and they were saying, but Google's so random and hit and miss and you don't know what you're going to find. And I was like, well, exactly. And, you know, again, it's, it's smaller businesses don't have the benefit of things that larger businesses have. They can't hire experts. They can't get a consultant in. They can't <clears throat> pay to go on training courses. Right. But they need some of these things arguably more than larger companies. Um, and so I was kind of looking at what could we do to actually really help them to think in a structured way about their business, um, to get access to mentors, to peer advice, um, and so forth. And so what we're actually doing is building out a whole suite of integrated non-financial services that are specifically tailored for micro enterprises, whether they're just thinking about what they want to do or whether they've already got something and are looking to grow or want to get more organized, or perhaps they want to pivot a little bit as well. And the aim is to be their partner through all of these different stages of growth um, and to kind of help them feel like somebody has got their back. And I think that's, that's really important. And the people that I've spoken to have seen this as being something that they really need um, and just don't have right now. That is, Debbie, that's amazing. I think a lot of, especially fintechs, they kind of start with one product for one target segment. And what I heard from you is that you're actually, you've actually created several products um, for this specific segment of, of women, entrepreneurial women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important because it's not just about, you know, addressing a credit problem or a savings problem uh, or a payments problem. It's like looking at finan their financial health holistically, even with kind of the non, um, you know, the non-financial service, like community and resources that are there. One thing that I did not hear you say uh, is, you know, talking about any resources on financial literacy, um, which I think, you know, many, many folks, especially who maybe have a humanitarian bent towards trying to resolve financial inclusion, especially with women, there are a lot of discussions on uh, financial literacy. Do you see that as a core part of the Lucy, um, you know, product offering or value proposition or, or not so much? In some ways. And again, I think like with some of these things, it depends on what your definition is of financial literacy, right? And just to quote an example of what I don't mean. Um, when I lived in Indonesia, I was working with um, a, a company there who were building some financial literacy materials and had been asked by, I think it was USAID to build it for sort of women in more rural areas. And the woman that was building this course had come up with a selection of slides. And one of the slides said, um, how to save more money. Um, point number one, spend less than you earn. And her view was that this was financial literacy. Uh, I'm like, I think people know that. 
Um, and so, you know, it, and again, it, it can be much broader, but right. So to a certain degree, what we are looking at is aspects of financial literacy, but perhaps in a more um, respectful way, shall we say, right? Mm -hmm. So like, we know that the single biggest killer of small businesses is cash flow, right? But yeah. who knows how to build a cash flow projection? Hardly anybody, right? But it's like so vital. And so one of the things that we'll be focusing on is like, what is a cash flow projection? What do you need to put in into a cash flow projection? Perhaps we're, we're looking at providing a template, Excel template for a cash flow projection, that kind of thing. So that, that kind of financial literacy, absolutely, yes. Um, and in a kind of practical way, I suppose we're doing it as well. Uh, one of the financial service features that we have within the app is to enable you to set up named savings pockets and put goals against them. So, you know, new phone, daughter's birthday, whatever it happens to be. Um, and I think, I mean, that could be viewed as financial literacy that, you know, if you keep your money in separate areas with names against them, like little jars, yeah, it's easier to save. Um, and, and that applies to me as well. I mean, I've got two accounts with DBS because if I keep my savings in the same one as my spending money, I know where it's going to go, right? And so, you know, um, so from that point of view, I think, yes, we are, um, but it's, it's focused on um, skills building. So micro training or e-learning is very much going to be an aspect of this, um, but it's kind of getting to grips with financial management projections, um, accounting, boring but necessary stuff um, that people really need to know if they're actually going to make their business successful. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask about with Lucy is uh, how are you levering partnerships um, with other fintechs, financial institutions, and uh, what, is, what is the value proposition that you present to them? So we're working on the non-financial side of things. We're actually already engaging with a number of partners um, there are actually quite a lot of people that have developed really good quality content in isolation and, you know, having a, a good viable community and suite of tools is all about quality content. Um, but what we've seen is there's a whole bunch of people who have developed quality content and don't know how to get it in front of enough people. And so that's kind of where it's a, it's such a symbiotic relationship, right? It's a win-win for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. From the financial institution point of view, Yes, as a fintech, our model is absolutely built upon partnerships. Um, and so uh, we're kind of covered on the non-lending side of things in Singapore. Um, but we will be ultimately looking to partner with one or more banks um, once we start looking at lending to some of these micro enterprises. Um, and, and that's quite a common model. I think a number of the SME lenders do that here. Um, once we start going to other countries, which is going to be later in the year, um, our aim is to follow the remittance flows of the foreign domestic workers, so Philippines, Indonesia, Myanmar, um, which are very much, again, micro enterprise driven economies. And there, what we'll be looking to do is to partner with one or more banks or financial institutions um, to kind of that they would be like a white label partner, if you like, at the back. Um, that we would be able then to actually outreach and serve the clients that they don't want to serve or don't have the capacity to serve, um, but they would completely love that consolidated loan book or the consolidated um, deposits. 
and mm -hmm. so again I think it's a, it's a kind of win-win thing you know where we come in is really knowing the customer and using technology in a very clever way so this is includes alternative data sources for credit scoring but also how we manage the relationship the customer relationship management side of things obviously the way the app is designed everything to actually make people feel like being part of Lucy is beneficial to them and so yeah we will definitely be looking for banking and financial institution partners going forwards got it got it um, I also wanted to ask Debbie about, uh, you guys have a really interesting um, investor model or community model. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so yeah, the initial investor model. Um, so we'd, we've recently completed a, a pre-seed round um, and we decided fairly early on that we wanted particularly um, to offer this to women. Um, Again, just because if you look at the, the statistics of women getting involved or having the opportunity to invest in something that's really got a mission and an impact that's meaningful, there, there haven't been that many opportunities around. Um, and so we decided that before we started talking to the, the venture capitalists, um, that we would actually have this special pre-seed round. Um, and so that's basically uh, what we decided to do was to actually sort of talk to friends who then talk to their friends um, and we we actually were considering we were mid pandemic I think like it was it was much more successful than we had hoped for so we we were kind of thinking maybe we'll get about hundred thousand or a little bit more and we've now closed I think five hundred and seventy five thousand dollars wow amazing yeah and and say it's it's um what's what's been so heartening i think as well is that so many of the women who have actually joined as investors also really want to contribute and to be involved um just because again they they kind of really believe in what we're trying to achieve and you know i think a lot of women or pretty much everyone i speak to has got stories to tell about being discriminated against in some way right whether it's 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 kind of be the, the sort of the politics and it at work or um say being sort of the little voice that's always whispering in the ear that's saying you haven't got what it takes to set up your own business or whatever but um you know i think that there's this real kind of camaraderie right um of women wanting to help other women to succeed and so yeah i've say i've been i've been really really heartened by the the warm response we've got um of, of people who have invested but would like to actually contribute more as well yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm after after hear, you know, hearing the story, Debbie, I'm also like, sign me right up. Yeah, it's great to hear. Which is great. And I, yeah. And I think I think, you know, just going back as well, I think, you know, one thing that we're really seeing is that this this kind of women wanting to pay it forward. Right. Um, and I've spoken to lots of very successful women who've said, well, you know, I've been where she is now. Um, mm -hmm. And I've got some advice I could give or a few kind words I could give or, you know, you've got this go girl kind of talk, you know, just just those little little boosters that people need when they're finding getting their business off the ground really tough. Um, Debbie, I want to zoom out a little bit from Lucy and talk about kind of more broadly financial empowerment of women in Southeast Asia. What are some of like the key barriers they face and uh, especially those barriers that may have been created as a result of COVID? 
Um, I think there are, there are a number. Um, one is um, just the, the general barrier that I've seen in a number of countries where a lot of banks won't lend to women without their husbands being present at the bank. Um, um, it, in, in Myanmar, for example, it's also quite frequent that banks won't lend to businesses without collateral and most of the collateral that people have tends to be land and the land is always in the name of the man right so it's just and then it's the it's the what is it the competence versus confidence debate yeah right is that the the men tend to be much better at flagging um and <laughs> and and kind of so tend to, tend to sort of be much better at telling themselves right rather than the women kind of tend to be much better at doing it, perhaps. Um, so I think it's it's a combination of all of these things, right? It's it's the practical aspects, but it's also the psychological aspects that are a barrier. There is also, of course, the whole affinity bias um, thing, which is you know people tend to trust and have more faith in people like them. And so if you're a woman and you're going to the bank and asking for a loan and you're met with some middle-aged guy, um, you know, it's, it's the same with the VC world, right? It's exactly the same thing is the vast yeah. majority of VCs are, are guys. And so they tend to be sold on guys that are like them. So I think that this is, this is a big challenge. Um, from, from a COVID perspective, of course, it's just knocked so many of these small businesses to six. Um, and um, I think we're coming in as a, at, a, at a good time um, as people are, you know, people have had to pivot and reinvent themselves a little bit. Um, I read some stories on CNA actually last week about a woman, for example, who had been a tour leader in Singapore. And of course, that's dead, right? So she had to kind of think about what else she was going to do. And her daughter said, but we really like your cookies. Why don't you try to start? selling those and that's yeah. what she's done she's now set up a little business from home with her cookies and it's been really successful but she hasn't kind of got quite as far as she could do because she doesn't have a lot of the tools available um, and so i think you know there's of course the big shift to online um, we are seeing more of a shift towards um, the gig economy and away from long-term formal employment as well and that's in all countries, right? That's Singapore as well. It's the UK, it's the US. Um, the number of businesses that have been registered in the last year has exploded. And so we, we kind of see this as being a massive opportunity for us to actually really do something meaningful here because there's this whole new group coming in um, who've lived in comparative comfort, I, was, I suppose you would say, of like having a day job um and now are kind of having to reinvent themselves as well yeah yeah that's a that's a really good point and you're right we do see it globally that these issues are happening globally the vast majority of uh people who have lost their jobs during the pandemic have been women uh yeah. and, and you know, creating an opportunity uh for them to be self-employed by starting something on their own is is yeah. hugely impactful Lucy's obviously got an incredible mission and is starting in Singapore. Um, but what are prospects for um, other women-focused fintechs uh, across Southeast Asia? Are there any? Um, and do you see there being a difference in the way that you engage 
customers in Singapore versus, you know, other markets in Southeast Asia? Well, it's obviously such a huge underserved market. Yeah, there, there's a massive opportunity. But as I say, I think what, what we've really recognized is, is that immersing yourself in the world of the customer and seeing life through their lens is, is what's driving us. Um, and the way that that um, kind of goes forward is as we move into other countries, um, the approach is the same, which is really understanding the, the group first of all, because there will be some similarities and there will be overlaps, but there may be aspects that look quite different. And I'm not just talking about sort of language and culture and so forth, but the, the segmentation and the general profile and you know what the competitive landscape looks like or whatever is is very different in each one and so yeah we will be um focusing very much on say getting that same deep understanding um you know, that's where a lot of my background has been actually sort of leading research and um being very uh say immersive and qualitative about this kind of understanding so uh yeah we're not going to be we're going to be the antithesis of those one size fits all financial institutions that are there right now. Yeah, actually, my next question to you was going to be, you know, what are the biggest mistakes you see big financial institutions or even fintechs making when they're attempting to serve, you know, women customers? And, and maybe that's a question, you know, even regulators or nonprofits trying to meet uh, SDGs. Um, what are the mistakes that they typically make when they, when they try to serve women? Well, I think it goes back to what I was saying, like, right at the beginning was this kind of like, being product driven, right, rather mm. than pain point driven. It's like, well, we've got a product and it's up to you to make that product fit you. And we don't care if it doesn't really fit you, um, but you're gonna have to work around it. Um, and I, I'd have to say, it's not only a women thing. Um, I did a, a conference a number of years ago in Kyrgyzstan, and we were talking about the impact on microfinance borrowers that had been caused by the devaluation of the Russian ruble. Um, and what the impact basically was that um, a lot of people in the former Soviet bloc countries had gone to Russia to work. And so the families were largely dependent upon remittances coming back <clears throat> and had often taken out loans from banks based upon that. Um, they then found out that because they're running small businesses and their small business cash flow is erratic, um, that sometimes they couldn't afford to pay their instalments because the, the instalments tend to be regular, right? And so the cash flow didn't fit the loan instalment. Um, on top of that, um, the devaluation had meant that less money is coming into the country. Um, IFC actually was the one that presented this at this conference I was at. And they said that they found out surprisingly that the default rate, um, for the loans have been much lower than they would have thought. So they went out and talked to individuals and said, well, why, how come, you know, how much have you been impacted by this? And uh, they're like, terribly. And well, how come you're still managing to pay your loan? And they said, well, we're terrified about being blacklisted. And so if we don't have enough money for an instalment, we go and borrow from the loan shark to pay the bank, which is crazy, right? Crazy crazy um end up paying so much more in interest That's, well wow. now you're paying now you're paying twice right and so yeah. like the whole reason for the bank loan was to avoid the loan shark and now they're paying both because the bank 
instalments don't fit their reality. Um, and the other thing that they'd done in order, because of the lesser money that was coming in to continue to pay the bank loan, was that they were eating less. So in some cases, they cut down to like one meal a day um, so they could pay the loan at their bank. Right. And so, you know, it, it's this kind of thing that, that just by listening to people and actually really understanding, you know, it wasn't that these people were not capable or not willing to pay the loan. It's just all these things that conspire to kind of hit them. And, and just by being more responsive and understanding more about what's going on, um, you know, you can actually be benefit people much more. Yeah, because money that's not going to the loan shark is money back in their pocket is more food for their kids or whatever. Yeah, wow. That is, that is a really powerful story, Debbie. I think, mm -hmm. you know, for folks that live in maybe a more of a white collar financial institution type world, um, you know, is maybe just not the way that they are trained or we're trained to, to manage our, to work with our customers. Um, mm -hmm. so really in, incredible insight. Um, you know, maybe, you know, outside of women, of, of women who you're serving through UC, um, what advice do you have for, uh, you know, women like myself, um, who are also working in the field of finance or fintech, um, which tends to be pretty male dominated. Um, what advice do you have for them and us, uh, you know, in managing both personally and professionally in this kind of a, in this kind of a world? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question gosh um well actually i, I was speaking at a, a smu um session with a bunch of students a couple of months ago they were asking very similar things because they were just kind of going into their careers and they're saying well how, how would we deal with this um and you know i think one one key thing here and and one thing i'd actually said to them was that you know um patronizing behavior um talking down to women um, treating women as if they're somehow inferior when they're sat around the table doesn't say something about you, it says something about them. And I think the more that you can bear that in mind, that this is a reflection on them, not a reflection on you, um, this can, kind of just, I think, can help a little bit. Um, in, 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 you know, I've always said that every time some guy patronizes me, um, uh, you know, expects me to be the one that makes the coffee, whatever, he goes down in my estimation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, not the other way around. Yeah, like, how do you fight that, though, right? Because if it's a culture, and if you're surrounded by men, it becomes pervasive, um, or, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but, you know, if it is the culture of an organization. Yeah. Well, I've mastered the art of the patronizing, sarcastic comeback while being completely straight faced. <laughs> um, and so the kind of thing that just makes them look completely ridiculous. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of get if it gets a laugh from their peers around, then I've, I've kind of scored one little victory. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the other thing is, of course, you know, just rise above it and call it out if it happens. Um, I had this actually my last company, I'd hired a consultant <clears throat> to find out why um, a couple of people on my sales team weren't kind of getting the results that we'd hoped for. And I wanted to see what the blockers were. Um, when on the final 
the final meeting that I had with the consultant, bear in mind, I at the time was the regional director of Asia Pacific, the Middle East and Africa. And the person that had hired him, i.e. the client, during the conversation, he referred to me as a sales girl. Oh, yeah. And yeah, my reaction to this was to actually stop the conversation dead and look at him in amazement until he actually looked at me, realized something was terribly wrong and said, is there something wrong? Um, and then I explained to him in a very calm way, uh, yes, there is. Do you realize what you just said? Do you realize like I'm the client here? Um, and, and, and just made him feel sort of this big, um, which he kind of completely deserved. But again, I think the trick and say, maybe it's just the whole British thing as well, but I'm kind of quite good at doing this very level, not losing it kind of thing. Um, kind of just calm, straight look in the eye that's out of order um and using yeah. silence right i think you can always use silence to your advantage as well it makes people feel really awkward so lots of lots of things you can actually do to highlight this because i do actually believe sometimes as well you know it's not intentional yeah sometimes it's just the way that people have kind of been brought up or whatever it's not something that they're kind of intending to be patronizing but nonetheless it's something that needs to be corrected yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna try that next time I'm in a meeting. Uh, you know, someone refers to me as a not a sales girl, but a girl. I think I'm gonna yeah. try that. Yeah, um, the silence and the steely stare, and it was like, beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. What would be the next segment or community of women you'd like to work on or with? Uh, do you think that a lot of the learnings are applicable for uh, for even women who are educated? Um, uh, do we mean in Singapore or outside? in Singapore? Uh, let's say both. Yeah, well, I mean, our focus, as I say, is quite, it, the segments that we focus on are the ones that we identify that have problems, right? So wherever there are pain points, that's kind of what we're looking to address. And so the two groups that we've particularly identified in Singapore have been foreign domestic workers and micro entrepreneurs. Yeah, mm -hmm. once we go beyond that, um, we're into much bigger countries which are kind of quite spread out geographically. Um, and, you know, if we, look at, if we look at, say, the Philippines and Indonesia, let's say, um, geographically really spread out, massive population, much more micro-enterprise driven. Um, and so, but then you've got broader segments or, or different segments. So there'd be people running corner shops versus women who are farming, lots of women who are farming, right? Profiles of those two, I've done a lot of work on that in the past, completely different from each other. Pain points that they have, completely different from each other. So again, we'll be looking at each country that we go to and sort of working out the segmentation, but it would be different on a case-by-case -case basis. What are some tips for getting traction with financial institutions in the development or deployment of women-focused resources? So in, in Singapore, there are quite a lot of grants available in various shapes and forms. Um, we are actually also um, engaging with a number of international NGOs um, who have got, again, you know, this has become very much a global uh, area of focus is, is gender. Um, and so um, I'm, I, we've all actually, actually recently been approved for a grant 
um, from one of the international NGOs. Um, so there are certainly grants available for very clearly defined um, social missions, because that's obviously what donors like to see. Um, from the point of view of the partnerships, I mean, I was mentioning about the, the banks that we're looking to partner with going forwards. And um, the key thing there is about the win-win-win. The um, so there are three wins. Um, the first win, of course, is the customer, um, that they're going to get something that's affordable, accessible and relevant, um, which is entirely what our focus is about. But it needs to be something that works for us and works for the bank. Um, and again, that's recognizing what it is that's valuable to the bank. And so it's the value proposition thing again, right? We need to go and talk to banks and say, what is it that's important to them? What are their pain points? Um, and how can we actually bring value to them and value to the customer at the same time? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think, uh, as you said, it's becoming much more of a focus. Gender, gender uh, is becoming such a big focus that I hope that we see more and more resources like this available down the line and more and more focus on it, even from the private sector. Uh, so I have one last question for you, uh, which is just, you know, how can audience members who are also inspired by Lucy and the mission, uh, you know, support you in the work that you're doing? Okay, um, well, I'll, on our webpage, um, there's a, a place to sign up um, if you are female um, for our pilot. Um, so if you like a Lucy account, it's open to all women um, in Singapore. So you can just sign up on our homepage, which is www.welucy.com. Um, we're also um, selling some um, tote bags on there um, for $50, which have actually been handmade using very sustainable methods, um, including hand painted. Um, by an artisanal group in Indonesia. You can order those online on our um, webpage. Um, we've got our LinkedIn page, our Instagram page, and our Facebook page, um, all of which um, we'd encourage you to follow and share. Um, of course, if anyone would like to join with me on LinkedIn, um, please send me an invite. I'm always happy to connect and have a conversation. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for, for this conversation. I've had a ton of fun and learned so much from your experiences. Uh, so really thank you for being here today. Uh, again, in celebration of International Women's Day, and we hope to see you again soon. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, everyone. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as uh, a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time 
and uh, look forward to seeing you there thanks for tuning in to this episode of the green room with amrita veer listen to us on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates you can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, and just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.